Stand by for a start. Racing. At $210,000 at Isella. Done. Well done. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of The Shortlist, the official podcast of the Federation of Bloodstock Agents Australia. And as we know by now, episode 11, the FBAA exists to develop, maintain and improve the standards, integrity and services of bloodstock agents across Australia, making buying and selling horses better, easier, more ethical for everybody that wants to get involved. Joining me today... For episode 11 to discuss the well, not so much the hot topics of the day, but more a bit of bit of history, I think. A bit of history that's probably pertinent to how we trade uh, bloodstock internationally today are the brothers Ford, John Ford and Peter Ford, whose family have been mainstays of the Australian bloodstock scene for decades now. It's a pleasure to have these gentlemen with us today. John, Peter, hello and welcome to the shortlist. Yeah, thank, thank you, Jack. Yes, um, very, very, uh, very nice to be invited, and uh, you know we certainly span a bit of years in the industry. Um, all started with our father Frank Ford uh, back in uh, the fifties and sixties. Uh, he was one of the pioneers of the export of Australian horses to Southeast Asia, Northern Asia, uh, and. Uh, he had a few titles. Uh, one was the uh, unofficial ambassador of racing for Australia. Ah, is that uh, a bit like uh, Celez Patterson when he was? Uh, <laughs> was he was he cultural attaché? Pete was he? Oh, Les oh, Patterson. Good, yeah. Good morning, Mick. Yeah. Good morning, John. And uh, thank you, uh, Mick, for for making this um, lovely space available here out in uh, Nidri. Yeah, yeah. But, um, gorgeous surrounds. Look, I, I think the Celeste Patterson's a, a little bit of a stretch, but um, but uh, like just following up on what John said, it was uh, he did virtually invent the the um, export of horses out of Australia and all the systems that went with it. Um, you know, including the designing of the stalls, and you know, you get, you get them wrong before you get them right, and um, and eventually got to the point where we, we shifted 112 at a time on a regular basis and uh, logistics and the, and the um, you know, the paperwork and the dotting, the T's and the crossing of the I's mm-hmm. that has to happen, um, apart from just getting the horses there and getting them to the other side of the world in one piece. And John starts with buying them and, and assembling them and doing what you have to do to them. And, um, and we did that regularly, uh, two, sometimes three times a year. So that'd be... 224, 336 horses a year on a regular basis. Wow. And we'll talk about the significance of those early days of international transport to Asia and, and the ramifications that's had on, on international trade uh, today. But more recently, Pete, you've, you were the, well, you're known as the man who bought Helsing, unnamed, <laughs> spotted yes. her from nowhere, the dam of the great black caviar and a noted farm starter, you know, helping people get their broodmare bands up and going. You've done that successfully for a number of farms and uh, often seen around sales working closely with the Griffiths de Kock team, as it is now. And you've had much success fr- from yearlings right through to broodmares. Yeah, I, I suppose that um, we started off we were ponies and riding horses and equestrian horses and in the in the 60s, uh, Frank had a client that John had a lot to do with, Philippe Ismail, and they were breaking records, buying top price yearlings all over Australia. Um, so yeah, look, it, it 
didn't just drifted into that side of the mm. um, of the industry, and um, eventually, you know, I'm a bloodstock agent because there's no other category, actually, you know, that, that I can fit into. So, equine so, relocator. Well, told yeah, me I did tell you that, and I'll, <laughs> I'll stick to that. Relocator, equine relocator, equine advisor, but um, but yeah, the Helsing um, or the unnamed Desert Sun Scandinavia filly was was a fairly important day. And, yeah. Uh, I only asked one person for their opinion, and that was my brother John, who's sitting beside me. And um, <laughs> and he he said, uh, apart from the fact that she was a great type and beautiful, you know, uh, mare, you know, uh, type of mare to, to have a decent sort of a foal, uh, he said she needs a few Sunday clothes, which meant she needed to be, you know, uh, put on a little bit of condition and get the old hair out of her and whatnot. So. We often say it's easy to buy, uh, uh, it's harder to buy a horse in in, in, in um, not as good condition as what we're used to seeing at our yearly sales. And John, you've had a long and storied career yourself and much success. You've bought Crawford Cup winners, Epsom winners, Derby winners. You know, there's probably nothing you haven't done, but personally, you're quite a horseman yourself, equestrian and, and polo to an international level. Well, that's right. Um, in, in my younger days, and when I was quite slim, uh, yes, I was a su- successful show-jumping rider. I had a, <coughs> a very good horse called Highlander, and we were lucky enough to win the Grand Prix in the Royal Melbourne Show in 1965. Uh, it got to a stage I started playing polo as a teenager. Uh, my, uh, my first coach was Sir Ali Creswick, and my mentor... Uh, in those early days was Hilton Nicholas, you know, both former VRC chairman. I was lucky enough, you know, to be to know some of these people, the prominent racing people, and some of the old trainers. You know, as <coughs> as, a, as a teenager, going around with my father, looking at horses that we were buying. Um, <coughs> on the polo side, I got to a stage where I was heavily involved with my father in the bloodstock business. And uh, we couldn't do show jumping and polo, so I concentrated on the bloodstock and the polo. And um, I had a you know, very satisfying career as a polo player. Uh, attained a ham- handicap of four goals, which is quite high, and represented Victoria interstate on a number of occasions. And uh, played at Warwick Farm, the, the, which was the the leading uh, polo ground in the middle of uh, in the middle of Warwick Farm Racecourse, so uh, we saw quite a bit of Sydney, and also at the Royal Show, we played polo at night at the show. But over the years, there's been a lot of uh, thoroughbred identities and polo people involved. Uh, Sandy Tate, uh, who of the, of the famous Tate family, he was a very good player. He was. Uh, Captain New South Wales, uh, and uh, it gets back to, I think, the horse, the, the, what I learned as a horseman, active horseman, and uh, you know, riding horses, training horses uh, for polo, show jumping, uh, gave me a, a great understanding of the, the horse itself. Uh, temperament was always a, a big thing in all, uh, whether it was polo, show jumping, racing, and confirmation, of course, was a um, prime, prime uh, criteria for any sort of a horse. 
So, um, you know, it's uh, it's been very interesting and, um, you know, you, I, I, I went to a lot of sales, um, some of those big shipments we bought. So for instance, uh, we'd go to a, an Inglis sale. John Inglis was always happy to see Frank Ford and, and his son. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if we had a particular shipment, we'd probably buy, you know, 40 to 50 horses at John's sale and the Wright Stevenson's and then Del Getty's sales and David Cole's, of course. Uh, a lot of them were bought privately, uh, those in the old days, but uh, uh, it's a very, very interesting um, career with horses. Well, let's have a chat about and get into our big issue for the day, I guess. Broadly speaking, it's Australia's role in the in the global thoroughbred industry, and and primarily as a as a feeder nation for a lot of Asian jurisdictions that don't have strong breeding programs. And sort of alluded to it already in the Ford family and uh, role as pioneers in in horse export. Where did that involvement begin? Where does somebody ring up from? Well, not ring up, <laughs> but anyway, how do they get in touch from the other side of the world or parts far flung in, in Southeast Asia and say, hey, uh, we need some racehorses over here. Where does that start, Pete? Well, look, it starts, uh, you know, I think, from our, our, our dad was in the uh, rem- Army remounts and was attached to the purchasing group of the Army. So he went around with the, with the purchasing group and purchased, purchased a lot of horses to that were exported, and they were exported up to 1963, John, I think, wasn't it? Oh, you were there. Um, I was a bit young. And um, uh, so that developed into, you know, contacts made in in, uh, in in those fields, and you did it by cable or telegram. I mean, I can remember we got a telex machine <laughs> and then still fascinated by the fax machine, which, uh, you know, which, which um, revolutionised our business. Uh, <laughs> But uh, no, it, it, I think the systems put in place in the army purchasing and, and uh, export were just then drifted into how we did things. And what, what we found and what we promoted everywhere was that the Australian horse was tough. Like he could survive, you know, minus 15 and plus 50. So sending them to these equatorial countries, whether it be Singapore, Malaysia, Korea, Thailand, you know, Pakistan, wherever we sent them, uh, they would survive. They would do better than horses that come from other parts of Europe that didn't acclimatise so well. So that was what we promoted, how we promoted the Australian horse in it. And we got a lot of business and we got a lot of foreign investment, that early investment that came out of places like the Philippines. Um, John, you can probably well, expand on that. The thing is uh, the performances, particularly in Singapore, Malaysia in those days, uh, as uh, the Australian horses, you know, alerted alerted the, the owners that, um, uh, you know, they, they are interested in. There were certain breeds that did very well. Uh, you know, they, uh, uh, horses of old, old days, smoky, smoky Eyes and Jambo and a few of those sort of horses that handled the wet tracks. Today in Hong Kong. Uh, the, um, it's interesting that many years ago, the Thai, the Thai uh, Turf Club uh, imported 40 thoroughbred fillies for their owners, and that was done in conjunction by, by, my, by Frank, my father, in conjunction with Frank Minch and Bright Stevenson's. So one thing that uh, our father always instilled in us that uh, always if there was a job to be done, if someone else had an order, he was happy to, uh, happy to uh, 
help them out and participate that way. Uh, the old saying, uh, is, one of his great sayings was, uh, a half a loaf is better than none at all. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's one of the old horsey, horsey terms. But, you know, the, the Philippines, for instance, um, we had a very good client, uh, Augusta Santos, who was a banker, and he was a very, very strong uh, on pedigrees. And uh, he'd come over and <coughs> he'd, he'd buy some yearling fillies. Uh, and actually, my father maintained that the cheapest way to buy a decent broodmare was to buy well-bred uh, yearling fillies with good confirmation. And if they performed on the race course, it was a big bonus. Uh, but they still had that pedigree and the bloodlines that you, you look for. Yeah, nothing's changed. And also then... Um, uh, the uh, say Philippines like Mr Santos, they bought broodmares in foal. They come over to the uh, come over to the sales say the Wright Stevens and Delgetti sale in March and the Sydney Easter sales, and you had to buy. They didn't mind if they were late services because it gave us more time to, to prepare them for shipping and so forth. Then stallions uh, often bought, um, you know, so the first son of showdown ended up in the Philippines buyer a mare that Mr Santos, we bought for Mr Santos in foal to showdown. And then talking about Indonesia, there's a very good friend and client of ours that's a leading breeder in Indonesia and over the years, that's a Madame Sahajiano, she bought a number of stallions and also the first Sabil to wow. go, go into, into, into the I took him uh, over. South and, Peter delivered him, but uh, and also another stallion uh, we we got uh, sent there was Eagling, uh, but so there was and also sons of. of uh, so they went by sea that lot from um, from uh, would you believe Broome? We right. shipped the horses from Euroa to Broome. We did we did that twice and one out of Fremantle once and and they all went up to Indonesia and I took Possibly. them. I think there was about a dozen stallions on 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 one of those shipments and. You, so it was a cattle ship, so you actually, you know, you had to figure out all you had was a cattle pens, and there's like your local Bunnings in in. So you you bought you know timber and wire and rope and, and managed to separate the stallions from each other and the and the cows. <laughs> but this is a thing, and that you it doesn't help people listening because they can't see the documents. But you've got some old documents and old photos here, and one of them is, and we'll just explain it and. People listening can paint a picture in their own mind, but was it 1983 there, John? And there's yeah. a picture of horse, basically small horse floats backed up together, almost like a corral. Yeah, like a stockyard on a runway at an airport. No, no, it's in right in the middle of the tarmac. The tarmac, and, and, and we had a giant tarp that we got from GV Molder in Corfu. Sure, well, this wasn't Tullamarine or something, was it? Tullamarine, yeah, 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 yeah too right, yeah. and and the the but the. The picture there has got the loading stall, which took three horses, and in the middle of the tarmac, we would we would nose two tr- trucks into that loading stall and create a triangular yard, and and then the, the 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 truck we took the horses off would come in and we'd lock them all in so nothing could escape out into the far reaches of the Tullamarine. So, like I said to you before, we made it up as we went along, and 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 we managed to. I can I can tell you now I've taken two thousand two hundred horses to or from somewhere in the world, wow. and and I've only managed to lose two of them 
one, and both in the air for for various reasons. So, um, you know, it was a safety. Frank was his own OHS department. My dad. So we were taught the the ways to deal with horses and 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 just to make it happen. It shows you how quickly things can come in a short amount of time. I was born in 1983, <laughs> so I'm 39 this year. So within the space of 40 years, we've gone from rudimentary corrals on the middle of the tarmac yeah. to these high-tech, single, double, whatever boxes you want, and horses flying literally around the world weekly, daily in some parts of the world to contest these big races. Does it, how does it feel to, to have been such a a vital part of those early days that that in that pioneering sense oh it's a, a privilege i feel privileged to be have part of it that we didn't we, to us it was just normal day-to-day work mick you know and um it was it look you can well, probably tell them about we, see, we, we prior took, to prior to air freight all by sea mm. and there were uh, stalls built on the on on the ship um you know save so the thai army we sent 70 70 mares um, to Thailand or by sea. Korea in the early days. Uh, they the original order was put for a thousand That's horses right. to restart racing, which started up after the Korean War. Yeah. So the original order was a thousand. So they all went there. What's the strangest place or the most unusual place you've sent horses to? Jeez, oh, <laughs> probably, probably Korea. <laughs> Oh, no, well, look, we've sent them to New Guinea. Oh, yeah. We, I, I, t- I took those carriage horses up to Taipei. Taiwan. Yeah. Right. Taiwan. So it wasn't just thoroughbreds and no, it no. wasn't uh, – some of the, the places you've mentioned in the background are people obviously trying to breed to sustain a racing jurisdiction. But these were pleasure horses as well. And, and is this – I guess you'd say as Asian wealth was starting to, to occur and they, they started to look around the world and see what – I guess other wealthy people do in their pastime and a lot of it is equestrian pursuits. And horses were easy to get to Asia from Australia, basically. You, you know, we had the pathways to get them there. They were easy to get there from Europe and America and whatnot. So it became um, the more people that you... The more you did, the more the word got around that if you wanted a horse, you got to come and see this Frank Ford guy in Australia. Well, there's this great uh, line from an article that John's just sent me saying, uh, during the last... During the past 10 years, the round, tanned face of Victorian Bloodstock Authority, Mr Frank Ford, has become as well-known in near-Asian countries as that of Australia's Foreign Minister, Mr McMahon. Of course, Billy McMahon. Mr Ford is recognised as the unofficial overseas ambassador for Australian (laughs) racing, and he has sold Australian horses to kings and queens, presidents, maharajas, sultans, princesses, princes, business tycoons, and to anyone who wants a horse to race or ride. And that's, that's pretty much the business in a nutshell, wasn't it? Exactly. Well, my first ship, when I, I took six mares over in uh, 1974, five, I think it was, to the Sultan of Johor. And that was my first thing. I took the horses over there, went up to the palace, went to the polo with him. John had already been there, played polo with his son and uh, all around... Um, Malaysia. So that was my first trip in '75, I think it was. Those two uh, in Malaysia, the Sultan of Johor and the Sultan of Pahang, were great horse lovers. Uh, they raced horses. They had polo polo fields. Their their sons played polo. They played polo themselves. Their sons, and the actual grandson of um, the Sultan of Johor, who we dealt with, is the present Sultan of Johor. 
but the the horse in all those Asian countries, the horse was part of the the whole makeup. Uh, see, Korea, for instance, in the in the villages, the bride rode to the the ceremony on a horse. Uh, you know, in Japan, the horse is held in great esteem. Talking about Japan, it's 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 uh, interesting that. Uh, Frank, my father Frank and uh, David Coles went to Hokkaido in uh, 1972 and they were the first agents, recognised agents, to visit that area. And um, we've got photos of um, Frank and David uh, there with, uh, with one of the leading breeders for these brood bears on stallions and uh, also they visited... Uh, one of the first yearling sales ever held in Hokkaido. Wow. And, uh, and one of the things that Frank saw there was the covering sheds. And on, on, when he returned to Australia, he had quite a few photos and we were out at um, uh, Stockwell Stud and, and showed George Smith and uh, Ken Cox, the owner, this, these photos. You wouldn't want to know Ken Cox was the first stud master to put up a, a covering shed. Wow. I would say. The other thing that I remember from Frank, Dad coming back from there, and he said to me, they sell foals up there. So he got talking to um, Bill, Stutt. Bill Stutt from Ride Stevenson's and said, you should put it on a foal sale, and ah. which they did, and I think we put a few Latin lovers in it, didn't we? We put, there was a, a fairly uh, an interesting, uh, oh, the, the interesting story that uh, Peter and I get great pleasure out of what Britain Tycoon is doing. Now he's the leading stallion. And uh, right back, I was with Frank, my father, at the um, Delgetti sale. We bought a bear filly by a better boy from Emerald Fire called, we called her Vivetza, owned by Mr. Mr. Santos. And anyway, down the line, um, she, Mr. Santos loved Vane. So he, he said, we want to send her to Vane. So he sent her to Vane. And I ended up getting a filly which we sold as a yearling. Tommy Smith bought her for Mike Willisy and it turned out to be Miss Entertainer. And Miss Entertainer is, of course, the granddam of... of yeah, she had Tycoon. a party miss and wouldn't I can. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and I get a bit of a buzz out of Ollie Kirk because, you know, his third dam is, is Helsing. So, in a way, you know, feel responsible for... For him, yeah. as you would. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah, <laughs> no, incredible. Yeah, you, you get great pride out of it, Mick. That's probably what we're trying to say. And, and I guess all pin hookers who have had success or otherwise can blame partially your father for, can. Yeah, <laughs> can. for introducing we'll wheeling we'll sales. Well, the next part of it was that after Miss Entertainer, uh, the next file was by Vane. Uh, Frank said, "What about if we uh, we we'd sold some weanlings uh, one year with uh, Bill Stutt started it off." Peter said there was a sale. Out here at Wright's Terms, it's at yeah. Flemington, opposite the race course. Anyway, dome. anyway the, so we put the vein filly up, the full system of entertainer, of course, Frank you know, had a purpose and ended up, uh, Joe Manning came down and bought her on behalf of uh, Tommy Smith for 30000 And that was back, you know, right back. So, uh, and then Mike Willis, he, he, had, the, he had the full sister. So, so that's... Timing is a, a great thing in the <laughs> bloodstock industry, you know. Absolutely. As we know, you know, uh, uh, you can uh, go from uh, <laughs> chocolates to boil lollies, or uh, <laughs> very well, quickly, that, uh, or 
or um, you know the other way, chocolates to champagne. So is that how some of these Asian racing and breeding jurisdictions that were having a go at breeding thoroughbreds early, why did some work, like i.e. Japan, become a powerhouse and others have sort of fallen off the, the radar a little bit? Well, when um, Frank came back from uh, Japan, he, he said, and, and it's in, in print, he, he, he maintained that Japan would be a major international interest. Uh, the Japanese breeders tried to buy... Uh, you know, English derby winners or English place, place, derby place getters. And that's why all those, those bloodlines, those staying bloodlines are coming through. When the European horses got to dear, they went to America and the first horse they bought was um, Sunday Silent. And it's changed. And, and look, I, I suppose it's, uh, we've seen a, a full circle because now we have digital sales, which... Um, yeah, so how, how do you... How do you oh. to, and I'm, I'm, you know experienced gentleman let's call it that but, uh, how have you found that transition into the digital market like, lo- looking at this week alone there's a magic millions yep. digital auction there's bloodstock auctions have got their weekly sale there's an english sale closing on uh, yep. middle of this week as it does every two weeks you know, have, there's a massive amount of horses move through that digital space now look it's changed things from how we do things which is the old-fashioned way which is you know sometimes it's well still consider it the right way but sometimes technology gets ahead of you but um you've got to be able to actually see your horse and 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 see its traits and have a decent look at it a few times before you go spending someone's money is is what how i would put it um you know there's two it's too easily you know opinions it's too easily thrown around about horses sort of off a video um and and the other thing is it cuts people like john and i out of business, you know, um, but I, I think there's dangers associated with with, with digital purchases. I, I think there's, there's benefits. I mean, the benefits obviously are you get to go to the farms to look at them now. Uh, but if you can get around, like it's harder to cast your net so wide instead of them all being in one place and you go down and just go through them like you do at a yearling sale. So. Um, yeah, look, it's, it, it's got its challenges and understanding that is the way that things are going to go ahead because it's, it's profitable. Um, but still, I think there's, a, there's an instinct and a, and, and, uh, and a feel for horses that you, uh, you can only get from being beside them. Yes. In a, in Don, a way, does it mean think? that you have to interact more with the, with the farms and breeders and whatnot and you, you just keep touch with them more regularly to see what they've got coming up online? Oh. I think you do that, um, and also see, talking about um, you know the services that the bloodstock agents provide, especially our FBAA members. Um, you know we get called on to say a stud might have a group of weanlings, and we get called on to assess them mm. and advise on the confirmation. The, the biggest test for a, for a, a, a horse to judge a, a horse is a weanling on its mother. Well, not even a foal on its mother in a paddock with grass up to nearly its knees. Mm-hmm. So that will test any any bloodstock agent. But you always find a you know a cleared patch where you, where you can yeah, uh, decent look get, at a, get a good look at them. But you know, they, uh, and getting back to, I agree with Peter with the you know the physical inspection is uh, is, is what when you when you're spending big money for. A, for owner puts his trust in your judgment 
you know, you like to see everything. You, you know, you, you've got to check even from photos and videos. Uh, I've, I've been, I've actually, you know, have a fellow bloodstock agent in New South Wales who, who I, I uh, will, his clients may see something on the, uh, the digital sale. I'll get a call to go and have a look at them and give a report take our own photographs, uh, you know, check everything from the, uh, from the teeth back to the, uh, uh, the um, if it's a mare, the, re- the breeding, re- the breeding, breeding part of the, the breeding mare. Part of the mare. <laughs> and those things you can't see, you, you know, you've got, to, you've got to lift the tail yeah. and have a look. And, uh, and I, a big thing I like to see is anything, you've got to check the teeth, see yeah. whether they're overshot. Things like that, um, little things. Check if there's any spots on the eyes and things like that. How, how can you see that, a mm. photo or a video? Well, Mick, well, you were with me in Sydney last year. and Absolutely. I'm one of the few people that will lift a tail and, yeah. you know, you've got to make sure that the shape of what you're about to invest your money in is, 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 is going to, you know, maintain the mare for a good, you know, dozen years, you know, of a breeding foal. So. And what I enjoyed about that experience, Peter, was you, you go around and you're looking at, you know, weanling sales, yearling sales, and you, you go around with all different people and you hear all their different opinions and you think, oh, yeah, okay, so that's the young stock. But then what you look at for a broodmare, there's a whole another set of criteria that goes yeah. along with that, which is My why it's is. always best to to get somebody who's got experience in that field wherever you want to play and, 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 and take their advice. Hmm. What about stallion retirements? We're coming into that season now and we've had quite a few announcements in the last fortnight from uh, Newgate who have got a just a plethora of Group 1 winning cults that are going off to stud uh, in the next 12 months or so. You know, Golden Slipper winner, Stay Inside, Wild Rulers off, uh, Tiger Malay was just announced. That's just one farm, and we're only going to see more of these retirements. Profit, Profiteer will be announced so as well. Oh, look, I'm, I'm probably the wrong person to ask because I, I, I might be controversial, what, what I say, but... Um but look, I, I I do think there's there's a little bit of concentration. We see it in all the yearling sales with the with the colt syndicates and that. There's a there seems to be a concentration on buying colts for future stallions, and they seem to once they get to a certain mark, whether that is a group three, group two, or placing in group one, they're automatically become a commodity for everyone to um to to try and get that horse as a first season stallion. Now, the people to probably ask are the Henry Fields and the John Freyers and the, and the Peter Ortons and the Anthony Thompsons of the world, you know, that, that on that question. I, um, look, I think there's a good horse by every stallion and sometimes we're, we give a stallion three seasons and then he's done, you know. If we, Why is that so? Why? Don't, don't know, don't know. It me. seems that if there's not... A rollout of winners midway through the two-year-old season. People say, "Oh well, we're off so and so." Was that yeah. has that always been the case, John? Well, it's a, it seems you know the the popular the popular stallions of uh, you know go back into the show, showdown days. Better boy Vane, you know those people don't remember. You know the Vane, for instance. You know if, if if there was a horse that won the races equivalent to what Vane did. Um, the um, you know we'd been, we'd been falling over ourselves. You know, he won three three races in a week mm. in the Melbourne Cup Carnival. Yeah, yeah. No, thousand twelve hundred and fourteen. And I think he won up to a mile. You know, but uh, so and a big book then was forty mares. You know, so I suppose there's more 
investment, which has which has spurned like returns on investment. And yes, a certain amount of stadiums got to have X amount of mares for three years. To yeah, it becomes a commercial balancing act. It does. I mean, in a time in our time, well, before us, our old man and put a saddle on the stallion, ride him out of the paddock, and whatever followed him back in, he'd cover it with the stallion. Yeah, right. Basically, so I mean, that those I know that sounds a little bit old fashioned, but. But it's more like that's how we were brought up as, as horsemen, you know, rather than numbers people. And um, but I, can, I appreciate the way of the world, and I'm I'm doing my best to stay in it, Mick. And uh, and uh, but I can only look at horses and assess them on on the way they look and the actual instinct you get about them. So yeah, yes, I I agree with Peter. I I'd like to see you know with the with the stake money now. You know, if you've got a, a decent, yes, a decent colt and he wins a Group One, yes, you've probably got to protect his his uh, race performances. But you know, it's uh, the same with fillies and mares. You know, if they're if they're sound and they're doing the job, you know, just look at Inspirational Girl. You know, the other, the other day, you know, these and uh, Turfane. You know, I mean, what she's done in the last twelve months. Mm. Uh, but if they remain sound. Put it this way: a brood mare is going to. Once she retires, she's going to be a lot a brood mare for a long time. But you know, whether you've got million dollar races, uh, and even the colts, you know, if you delay another year, uh, is it going to make a lot of difference? Uh, uh, the, um, you know, I mean, three year old colts sort of being rushed off to to start. You know, they're only they're like in their teenage years. You know, Does that affect their fertility? Do you think the age that they go to Stud or is that seems to seems to I mean you you hear of a lot of stallions that that struggle with seeing horses like Star Spangled Banner who's a great stallion in Victoria he struggled you know um, there's sometimes horses like Flying Artie you seem not Flying Artie the um, extreme yeah. choice you know like whether they get into them too early because of the returns that the investors want I, I think that's got something to do with it yeah I think that there's probably should be more thought put into that. It's the great balancing act for the sport, isn't it? Because you get these colts that, you know, win the group ones. They look like they're going to be the next stars. And racing fans love that. And they love following that horse and having that horse to follow. So there's obvious frustration when, you know, 12, 18 months later, they're retired and they're off to stud when perhaps there was more to enjoy. But the commerciality of it is so important to consider as well. There's a lot of money invested in these horses. So... The people that are managing them have to try and get a return for the people that have invested. Oh, they they do, and I mean the service fees that they command, some of these horses, uh, and the number of mares that they serve, um, they are never they never <laughs> never earned it on a racetrack, but um, unless they win, you know, the um, Cox Plate and the and the um, Everest and a few a few of those big moneyed races. But uh, you'd like to see, everybody loves to see a, a, a good horse, something that, uh, you know, is consistent. Uh, and if it's got a bit of, if got the breeding to go with it, well, they're the ones that, and also the confirmation is, is uh, you know, the, in my opinion, I'm very, very tough on confirmation. That's what I was taught, you know, to be, whether it's a broodmare, a stallion, a weanling, yearling, whatever. Uh, that's how I, how I was taught, and I'm not very forgiving <laughs> when, <laughs> when looking. I can but on the that. other hand, I, I do I do appreciate the trainer's view, 
yeah. and there might be something that I'll point out and, and I'll say, well, uh, and same with owners ask you, I'll, I'll give a warts and all uh, description or a report and then in the we final, would, final, the owner or the, the trainer, you know, it's their decision. We were always taught, John, to tell the interested party the awful truth, whether that be good, bad or indifferent. You know, if the horse is not right, you see, you can't sugarcoat it. And I think there's a lot of sugarcoating goes on in our industry. See, I think that, you know, getting back to the the export of horses, you know, the, uh, regarding photographs, we, we were one of the first, we used to photograph the horses that we, we were selling and send them over to the, to the our clients, you know, so they can see, yeah. you know, on, <laughs> oh, by, yeah, by C-mail. It started off, you know, you had telegrams and cables and then along came, well, then the telex and then along came the fax. We thought that was terrific. And then, still, still amazed by it, Frank. And now, you know, and now still, the emails and, day, the, and the whole lot. Well, to this day. You know, even though I'm, um, you know, I call myself a, 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 an ageing bloodstock agent, I'm quite happy to take on uh, all these... Um, on communication, <laughs> well, all it's, it's interesting you, you mentioned that, John, because at the end of the, the episode, I usually ask the guests, you know, what they would change about the industry to make their life easier, but it might be more <laughs> pertinent to ask what change has made your life easier. It sounds like it might be an email. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, the, the information, you know, I mean, daily we all get information It's like, and so there's no excuse not to know what's going on in the industry. But it's a you know an amazing amazing industry, and there's so many people involved. Uh, you know, right from the from the breeders, the the, the, the jockeys, the trainers, the bloodstock agents. Look, and even even in the biggest thing that's happened to us in the last few years, like worldwide, is the pandemic. It's managed to keep going through there like a, unbelievably so. Mm. It, it it keeps on writing its own history, this business, um, mm. right from back what we did to what happened in the last few years to keep racing going. And, and not only has it kept going, it's got stronger. Values of mares have got stronger. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's an amazing industry. Well, I, think, I think we're, you know, Australia is virtually uh, leading leading the world, you know, in um, in what's been happening. I mean, last year where everybody didn't know what was going to happen with the first yearling sale last year in 2021 and, and I mean it was amazing and then it followed on uh, it's just um, we've never know, seen clearance rates yeah. like we have mm. this last year and look and, and the recent sale in Melbourne you know that was a, that was probably the best sale they didn't have a million dollar one but boy gee there was a lot of horses you know you'd, you'd look, look down the list you know and there's 200, 300, 400 it wasn't too many fifties, <laughs> or, or you know, I mean, um, and and people, uh, people were bidding, bidding on them, and then the overseas uh, interest, while some of them couldn't be here, they had agents on the ground, and it's amazing, you know, how, you know, someone will, you know, there'll be someone in a in a stud, you know, disperse. Look at now we're in Victoria with Wind Stud coming in and taking uh, taking over the um, Sun Stud. Uh, and and they ended up uh, the leading vendor at Melbourne, yeah. you know. So uh, uh, and also the the investment in Victoria, I think, it 
think we'd all agree has been in the last three or four years has been quite dramatic. You're part of that, Mick. Yourself. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, the leading very farms. small way. <laughs> Certainly not of uh, the likes of others, but we're doing trying to do our part, gentlemen. I could sit here and talk to you all day and listen to stories and 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 hear your views on the industry and how it's changed and developed. Thank you so much for, for joining us on the shortlist today. John Ford and Peter Ford, collectively known as the, the Brothers Ford from here on. <laughs> Thanks no, for your thank, time. No, thank you, Mick. Thank, thank you, you, Mick. Uh, we're only just warming up too, by the way. Very enjoyable. Thank uh, you for having us. No problem. And thanks for listening to everybody who listened to this episode. And remember, if you're looking for any advice regarding any bloodstock-related matter, always talk to an expert. Visit bloodstockagents.com.au and get in touch with an FBAA member today.